This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. Well, it is especially good to be in the second week of what we're calling our Together in This Series. Last week, we began the process of the series by looking at the last word of the title, this. If we're together in something, we need to know what that something is that we're together in. And generally, I think we know what we're in here, but we want to spend a little time uh, looking at what is the this of Grace Point Church. Who are we? What's our identity? Uh, What's our vision? What's our mission? What are the strategies by which we um, believe that we're going to achieve those things? Who is Grace Point Church? What is Grace Point Church? Now, I admitted last week there are a lot of ways to describe who Grace Point is, not the least of which, well, let me back up and say, we could probably go around this room and the description of Grace Point would probably be varied and I think we would all probably understand one another's definitions, but in this particular context, in this particular space of time, we felt like it was apt Um, Clint, could you turn these monitors off? They're ringing on me. Do y'all hear the ringing or is it just me? It's just me? There's a lot in that, isn't there? We think it's an apt description to say that Grace Point Church is a progressive Christian community. And automatically, when the word progressive falls out of my lips, being raised in the southeast, Um, I I know that word means a lot of things to a lot of people, and I'm not talking about progressive in a political sense or a general sense. We're specifically talking about the fact that Grace Point Church is a progressive Christian community in a theological sense. Um, And by theological, we simply mean that we, per our view of God, we favor progress. We believe Christianity itself is is progressive, because inherent within the ideological structure of Christianity is a belief in improvement, uh, belief in reform, even when it's painful. We believe in change, in forward movement, as opposed to always wishing that we simply maintain things as they are and the status quo. And we particularly believe in these things because we believe that God has designed creation to that end. We believe that this is the way that God sees things. So we believe Christianity is progressive in nature. We believe the tradition of Christianity is inherently one of progressiveness. We believe that Jesus was a progressive in this sense. We believe that the Apostle Paul was a progressive in this sense. So we're talking about the lens by which we see God, our theological lens. We're also talking about our anthropological lens, the the lens through which we see humans. And we're talking about the cosmological lens that we have, the way we see all of creation. Uh, These lenses for us are progressive. Now, last week I spent a little time and I told you that a person's interpretive lens, we all have lenses, but a person's interpretive lens is called their hermeneutic. It's kind of a fancy term, but it's an important, good term. And by hermeneutic, by lens, we're talking about your or my general disposition of interpretation. The general disposition that we bring toward life, the way that we see things, the way that we hear things, the way that we experience life is our hermeneutic. We concluded uh, last week by talking, or I concluded my part by talking about 
The fact that some people have a negative hermeneutic, we call that the Eeyore hermeneutic, right? Womp womp. And then some people, you don't know anybody that has an Eeyore hermeneutic, do you? And you certainly don't, right? We talked about the guy that had Limburger cheese on his mustache, you know, and the whole world stunk. Some people have that kind of a hermeneutic toward life. Some people have a positive, hopeful hermeneutic toward life. You know, the, some people take that to an inordinate degree, you know, Pollyannic visions of life. Remember Gomer Pyle on Andy Griffith's show? That's an that's a inordinately positive hermeneutic. Uh, one time, Barney was up. Sometime I, I, I regret that I tell you things like this because <laughs> some of you are just not cultured enough to understand the Andy Griffith show and its nuances, but... <laughs> But I'm going to lift you a little bit. Bon vivant, bon vivant of television that I am. Um, Barney was upset about something, and Gomer said, well, I'm happy. And Barney shot back, and he said, happy? What do you know about happy? You're always happy. You know, people like that, that are always just happy, even when they shouldn't be. But that's your hermeneutic lens. All of us are interpreters of life, right? All of us. You're sitting here interpreting life this morning. New folk, you're interpreting this church. Old folk, you're interpreting the mood of this church and what it means to be in one service and what's together in this mean and all of that. We're all interpreters of life. We are all continually interpreting both the visible and the invisible. And we're not just interpreting these things um, just for daily survival. Certainly we are for daily survival, but there's more to it than that. We are all interpreting the visible and the invisible in a deeper effort to understand. In an effort to understand and to make peace that none of us, I think, ever fully make here. But we're all interpreting life trying to make peace with the big questions. They call them the existential questions. Questions of origin, questions of destiny, um, Posthumous questions, what happens after we die? Questions of meaning, questions of truth. All of us are interpreting the data, trying to answer or come to some satisfying, sufficient peace with questions like, where in the world did I come from? Where am I going? Who am I responsible for in the meantime? Who am I responsible to in the meantime? What's the point of all this and why are we here? And all of us, as interpreters of life, we all have hermeneutics. We all have lenses, don't we? We all have dispositions of interpretation that we filter life through. John Conley wrote a country song back in 78, and he sang it. You remember rose-colored glasses? Remember that? We're dating ourselves, aren't we? Rose-colored, oh, I'm not gonna do that to you. Rose-colored glasses. I'll do you a recitation. And the general idea is that we have lenses that we see through. And these lenses of ours, through which we interpret life, they are generally created by a mix of a couple of things. Well, many things, but two general categories create these lenses, these dispositions, these hermeneutics of ours. Right? Nature. What's the other one? Nurture. Right. Genetics and brain chemistry, 
All of us that have more than one child, you know, we thought it was nurture and we thought it was exactly what we were doing. Stan Jr. was so easy. Take him to a meeting, set him there at three years old and he would sit there so nice. I would look around at people whose children did not do that and I would think, poor fools. <laughs> if they would just talk to me. And then Nina came along and Todd, you do the same thing and it's totally different because it's not all nature and it's not all nurture. It's a mix of those two, right? So there, there's, there's brain chemistry involved and then there are family and early social systems that shape these dispositions of ours. And, and these lenses that we see through, these hermeneutics that are shaped by our nature and our nurture, they really are not about what we see, they're about how we see. That's a good question to ask yourself. How do I see life? Not simply, Frank, what do I see? How am I seeing life? Cultural, macro-cultural systems play into this. You know, there are Westerners, there are Easterners, right? There's a Western way of seeing things, there's an Eastern way of seeing things. Much of modern psychology in the last 20 years has come under, not assault, but into question because so much of it has been born out of the Occident, out of the West. And as the rest of the world catches up and reads some of these things, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, they're like, you may be talking to someone, but you're not talking to the system from which we came. Uh, New Englanders, Midwesterners, Southerners, right? We, we see things different. Right, Robin? Paul and Robin and I were just having dinner last night, and these guys just moved here from a, a little country on our coast called Boston, Massachusetts. And they're going to learn the Queen's English before it's all over. You stick with us. We'll get you, we'll get you refined. But they were just commenting. We talked a lot about the difference between here and there. Lenses. One of my old professors, Daniel Pott, who spent a lot of time in Africa, talking about Western individualism. That's a lens we see through, right? And a lot of time, our lenses, we project onto everybody else and said we think everybody else sees it our way, but it's really this lens that we have. Dr. Pott was talking about ministering in, um, he's a great academic, but also a great pastor, and he was talking about ministering in Africa. In Central Africa, one of the most moving aspects of his ministry there, he said, was the, the worldview, the lens through which people lived. And he said, uh, specifically within tribes of people, there would be little sub-tribes, 50 to 100 people in a subset of cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents, three and four generations. And he said what was very moving about that, that structure, that culture, was that when you would enter into one of these little subsets, you would find out that they have cancer. That's what they would say, Carol, we have cancer. Our family has cancer. They never really identified that Carol has cancer, but, but there was a family that had cancer. And Dr. Potts said it was not just a, a superficial, you know, tacit nod toward that idea. He said, Buck, he said you could live three or four days in intimate community with them before you figured out locally which one of them actually had cancer. That's a lens. That's a good lens, actually. And so we all have these lenses. A lot of you have taken these uh, uh, personality assessments, right? Anybody ever taken the DISC profile? Anybody ever taken the uh, Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram? You know, are you a high D and a low S? Are you an INFJ or are you a one or an eight? 
You know, these are not end-all, be-all mechanisms, but these assessments help us to understand both ourselves and those that we're relating to a little bit better. So I think that's important stuff. Now, like lots of you folk, one of my chief shapers of the lens that covers the eye of my soul let me say it this way, like many of you, maybe even most of you, my life hermeneutic has been greatly impacted by Christianity. My lens through which I see life is very Christian. And this sounds hyper-spiritual and may gag some of you who are sensitive to spiritual language, but I've said at times, and I mean it in the best sense, that the lens that I see life through is Jesus. And there's a lot to that. And it probably means something to me now that it didn't mean years ago. And at least part of what makes me Christian, right? I mean, we all have that as a part of our lens. A part of what makes me Christian is that Christianity, here, here it comes. Christianity was and is the religion of my parents, their parents, and their parents' parents. God, Jesus, and the Bible were given to me from the womb. Pre-choice. I didn't check that box. I didn't choose to be born to a Christian family. But God, Jesus, and the Bible were given to me pre-choice as a big part of the lens and the language of my life. The lens and the language that I grew up exploring, searching, identifying, interpreting, defining life through, right? And that's true of so many of you. Phillips Brooks, one of my heroes literarily and pastorally, he was a famed 19th century Anglican clergyman here in the States. He was the longtime rector at Boston's famous Trinity Church, and you will know him because Brooks, beyond his clergy life, he was the lyricist of O Little Town of Bethlehem. And this profound guy was one day asked the question, Brooks, came the interlocutor's question, why are you a Christian? After a good bit of pensive, thoughtful deliberation, this wise old preacher responded, I think that it has something to do with a great aunt of mine who lived in New Jersey. And what Brooks was pointing to, and you are going against the well-being of your spirit to admit this and understand this, what Brooks was pointing to was that there is no denying that a part of our religious persuasion has to do with where we were born and who we were born to. Far from being just wry or coy, Brooks was actually pointing to something that's very important. But I want you to notice something. Brooks, why are you a Christian was not followed by because of a great aunt of mine who lived in New Jersey. Brooks thoughtfully said it has something to do. Not everything to do. 
But a part of why I'm Christian is because that's the world that I was born into. And I just want to say up front that it is true for Stan Mitchell, 30 years into ministry and 47 years into life, it is 31 years into ministry, it's true that Christianity was chosen for me. It is also true that I now feel satisfied that I have chosen it. And that wasn't always so. And perhaps it's still in process. But I am satisfied that that which was chosen for me, I have now reciprocated, made peace with, and chosen. I am at peace that at 47 years of age, my choice of Christianity, my circling back around and laying hold of that which laid hold of me, my 47 year old choice of Christ and Christianity is not simply something born of sociology. For me, it is born now of conviction. And I wanna just say I have found, and this is a progressive statement in itself if you hear it, I have found and I still find that this language and lens of Jesus is very satisfying and more than sufficient, it's even proficient for the work of my soul. And I want to tell you one of the chief reasons, doubling back to where we started, one of the chief reasons that I find Christianity and Christ so satisfying, and I didn't always, but one of the chief reasons that I find Jesus so satisfying now as a lens through which to see life is because of Christianity's progressive nature. Because for me, there was a day when the more I thought I understood Christianity, the more restricted I was. I understood Christianity was this hardened, walled room of orthodoxy that I could not even near the borders of the wall or touch them lest the alarms of heresy go off. And, and the problem was inside of that constricted room, I was a growing and I was a reading and I was experiencing and interpreting life. And it's a horrifying thing as you're growing and the walls are closing in on you. That kind of Christianity has no value for me. And I don't think that it's Christianity inherently at all. I have found the more I understand the Judeo-Christian faith, the more I understand the Bible and the more I understand Jesus, I found in, in this understanding of Christianity, the more I am free to explore, expand, evolve, grow, transform, to be awed, to embrace mystery, to innovate, to improvise, to imagine, to hope, to be courageous. I mean, the Christianity that I understood early on was that my little group we were at the top of the mountain of revelation. We were at the top of the mountain, we had staked our claim and we knew that the mountain of mystery had been understood and topped by us, right? Any of you grew up that way? And then one day a horrifying thing happened to me. The clouds begin to clear. And all of a sudden I realized, Rob, I wasn't at the top of the mountain nor was my group we were about 300 feet up the side of the mountain on an outcropping. And as the clouds cleared, the mountain actually reached 
infinitely into the invisible. And I looked around, and you know what was happening? All over the mountain as the cloud cleared were other groups like ours who also had staked their flag and said, we're at the top of the mountain. And we were all standing there looking at one another 300 feet up the side of the mountain. And that was so discombobulating to me, Michael, that I literally lost my balance, fell all the way down the hill to the bottom of the mountain. Then you know what you do when you deconstruct and you lose your faith? And there is some faith that's good to lose, right? I can't tell you how many people I've had sit down and say, help me, pastor, I've lost my faith. And I say, tell me about the faith that you've lost. And after they tell me about the faith they've lost, I say, well, thank God. <laughs> that's a natural part of life. That's a natural part of following Jesus. And then you, you fall back down and you start trying Humpty Dumpty to put the thing back together, right? You start trying, and you start trying to find all the Sherpas. You know what Sherpas are, those guys and gals that can help you up the mountain. You try to find all these sages, these Sherpas that can take you, and none of them can get you much farther than the outcropping you were on. And finally, you go the way, Steve, that Richard Rohr calls the way of the wise, not the way of the fool. You stand humbly at the base of the mountain called mystery. Matt, that's what I was saying when I said, well, agnostic, sure, we all are. I'm a reverent agnostic. Agnostic just means I don't know. That may not be good enough for some of you, but the last time I checked, Jesus said, can you believe? I can believe. No one's another thing, right? One day it'll be nice to know even as we're known, but that's not here. We're believing. And as my friend said, in the absence of believing, we're hoping. And in the absence of hoping, we're dreaming. And in the end, we don't stop dreaming because it's the only dream worth dreaming. That's the journey. And you make faith at the base of the mountain and you quit trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again and you build yourself a humble cottage at the base of the mountain called mystery. Oh, I still do all kind, there's nobody in this room that loves exploring the mountain more than I do. Theology, doctrine, reading, oh, I love it. But I no longer explore that mountain in an effort to save some soul of mine. I explore that mountain as a zestful, enlightening avocation but at the end of every day of all of my theological processing and all this erudite wisdom that we read and spill, even the stuff that really registers and rings true, at the end of every day, I come back down and live in the humble cottage at the base of the mountain where God lives. And the mountain provides the greenest of valleys. One of the chief reasons that I'm Christian is because of Christianity's progressive nature. And at the same time, another thing that deeply vests me in Christianity is its tradition. You say, well, isn't that contradictory? Not at all. I love that the more I understand Jesus and the Bible and the Judeo-Christian picture and story of God and God's relationship with humanity and creation. The more, the more that I understand this religion of ours, this God of ours that 
inspires great progress. The more I understand that all of this progress that we see above the soil is actually caused by something that's happening beneath the soil. Because the same Jesus that inspires progress above, this is the same faith that provides for me deep, broad, stabilizing root systems of tradition. But roots that are subterranean under the soil, roots are not simply self-sustaining. There are a lot of people who are simply into the root structures of Christianity. But roots aren't for the sake of the roots, are they? Roots aren't just to provide life for the roots. The deeper down the roots go, the more those roots achieve their purpose, which is to create progress above. Roots exist, tradition exists for the purpose of progress and growth beyond the root. And, and so here's the way I look at Christianity. Here's the way I look at my understanding of the Jesus that I follow. Progress, I'm a progressive. I think Jesus was a progressive. But progress that's not rooted in tradition lacks wisdom and I think sustainability. I wanna say that again. Progress for the sake of progress that is not rooted in tradition lacks wisdom and sustainability. But I wanna say this, conversely, tradition that's not creating progress lacks life and courage and faith and viability. So progress and truth, progress and tradition are not contradictory. These things go together. To that end, those of us who believe that progressiveness is an important characteristic of Christianity, we believe that one of the most important things that Jesus ever, ever, ever said, he said the night before he was crucified. And it really is the, the mantra, it's the zeitgeist of Christianity, or if you wanna call it progressive Christianity, which I think is the same thing. But one of the most important things he ever said was the night before he was sadly, torturously murdered. And John the 16th chapter, I just wanna look at two verses there, and then I'll bring this down the home stretch because I suppose y'all are gonna come back sometime, right? And I'll have you again, right? Promise me I'll have you again, and I'll stop. Okay? If you trick me and don't come back, I'll go longer. progressive nature of Christianity and Jesus. Listen, at the end of three years, God in flesh, he says, I have much more to say to you. But right now, it would be more than you could understand. I have much, just look at that, I have much more. The much more intimates that God hasn't given us everything all at once. There's progress involved here. It's a process and that process is full of progress. I have much more to say to you. That say to you part indicates something that we believe part of the Christian disposition is that God is communicative, disclosing, revealing. God speaks 
through lots of mediums, vehicles, devices, instruments, and partially gets through. The tradition of Christianity actually says that God speaks through things like tradition, reason, science, philosophy, art, and if you don't believe God speaks through art, think about it. Think about how music has impacted you. God speaks through everyday life experiences. God speaks through scripture. Scripture is a big one for those of us from a Protestant evangelical background. It's big for all of Christianity. I have much more to say to you, but right now, God's disclosing, but right now, that means that truth and understanding are, are time-related things. Truth and understanding are time-released capsules. Let me say this about Scripture. I have much more to say to you, but right now, it would be more than you could understand. Did you hear that last part? The more than you could understand says that your consciousness and capacity has something to do with the way God dispenses understanding. God doesn't just download, never has in the history of humanity just downloaded the whole thing. But little by little, as human consciousness grows, between the 14th and the 19th century, God doesn't change God's mind about slavery. But humans grow into a consciousness and we have the capacity to understand and God says, I've been wanting to tell you this a long time. I've been wanting to talk to you. The suffragist, the suffragist movement didn't spring something on God. Women in ministry was not a novel idea to God. Egalitarian relationships between men and women that are mutually honoring, the release of glass ceilings. These aren't new ideas to God. God says, I've been wanting to talk to you about this a long time, but it was more than you could understand. But when the student's ready, the teacher comes. Verse 13, and I'll close with a little litany here and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide. I love Eugene Peterson's message. He will take you by the hand and lead and guide you into all truth. Christianity in no way indicates that that promise found its fulfillment on the day of Pentecost seven weeks later when the Holy Spirit was poured out. Nothing about our story says seven weeks later the Holy Spirit fell and they knew everything. There's nothing about our story that indicates that in the two to three decades that we count as the book of Acts, full of apostolic counsels, compromises, arguments, splits, all of that interspersed with a gracious move of God's Spirit, nothing about our story, Paul, indicates that God just finally got the whole thing downloaded and said, Nothing about our story says that after a hundred years of the church's existence, they had these 27 books they had written, stepped back and said, got it all now. Nothing indicates that at the end of the fourth century, when we finally said those 27 books should be mutually canonized with the Hebrew scriptures and be our rule of faith, nothing indicates that we had it all down. It was another thousand years before people who owned that book said, you know, we shouldn't own other Christians as slaves. 400 more years before they said we really shouldn't own anybody. 
And there may be more slavery today in this world than has ever been here before. Nothing about our story indicates that this download of truth has come instantly, unequivocally, and is full. Progressive Christianity, here's the litany that we will go into the Lord's Supper with and allow me. Religious fundamentalism memorizes ancient stories and fixes their meaning by their original context. Christ calls us to see these ancient stories of wisdom as our own stories, as more than historical narratives to forever be frozen by their context. Jesus calls us to read them again as truth narratives that continue to unfold with every passing generation. A rigid hermeneutic, theological lens, sees the text of scripture as merely giving us final answers or fixed propositional truths. Christianity actually calls us to see the Bible as a dynamic, unfolding, unveiling, narrative filled with more than one time or one place can possibly unpack. You remember the distinction between tradition and traditionalism? Listen to this, tradition is the living ideas of dead people. Anybody ever run into those? Traditions, the living, are the, tradition is the living ideas of dead people. Traditionalism is the dead ideas of living people. Ooh. Traditionalism sees scripture as a book of answers. Tradition sees scripture as a holy invitation into the right conversations. In many of our upbringings, we were taught to idolize the past, treating highly charged moments in our faith's ancient past as end-all, be-all moments to memorize. The Bible actually calls us to not simply learn and retell stories, but to live into them and out of them, finding even more in them than those who first lived them found. Fundamentalism memorizes Paul's letters as final statements. Paul himself called us rather to his hermeneutic, his way of interpreting. Paul taught us how to wrestle with his writings by showing us how he wrestled with Moses' writings. You get that, you're off to the races with the Bible. Paul didn't know he was writing what would later be determined to be Holy Scripture. Paul was wrestling with Scripture and interpreting it for the context of a place and time in which he was ministering. I am personally grateful that we later determined Paul's writings to be scripture, for in this we learn the true nature of scripture, and that is that scripture is an invitation to hear, wrestle, interpret, apply, imagine, dream, hope, and act. And finally, scripture is the recorded wrestling of our ancestors within a process of spirit-led progress that we ourselves are called to. Scripture is not the constitutional end, it is the invitational beginning for every generation, not simply that that wrote it. And Christianity then is progressive because Christianity is hopeful, courageous, imaginative, always thankful for tradition as a root system out of which we do all of our exploring and make all of our progress, always believing that our lives and the world around us can be a better place, and so we are the people who pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, until finally heaven's dream 
becomes earth reality. And that is not full yet, but here and there, and now and then we see it. And that, brothers and sisters, is this hopeful thing that we call Christianity. I was chosen for it, but I am glad now that I can say I have chosen it. Can you say amen?